Our second lesson today is Colossians chapter 3, beginning at the 12th verse. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So today we finish up our three-week series on this third chapter of Colossians. If you're a visitor and it's your first time here today, if you're a member who's been away, I really think you should go back and listen to the first two sermons. They're posted on our website because what I'm preaching on today builds on what we learn together in the Word over the course of the last two Sundays. We're focusing on what it means to be chosen. Uh, That's the overarching theme of these verses. Verse 12 begins with, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Chosen ones. Chosen. And as I promised you two weeks ago, we would address the topic of predestination when we uh, got to this verse. Because as soon as you say chosen, many people, Christians included, immediately go to this concept of predestination. Because some people think that if God chooses to love and have mercy on some, then he simultaneously has already chosen to hate and reject and be cruel to others. In order to properly understand this uh, concept, this human construct, this predestination as it's used by so many Christians, we need to call it rightly by its proper name And really, when most Christians refer to predestination, they should be saying double predestination. Because when most people refer to predestination, they mean that God has already made not one but two choices. He's decided already who's going to hell and who's going to heaven, and there's nothing you can do about it. And many Christians take this concept to the extreme that everything is predetermined. Everything has already been decided in advance of it unfolding. So, if you're angry that your favorite team's not in the Super Bowl because the refs totally blew the call, don't blame the refs. God decided that. And if that meal you had at the restaurant that cost you way more than any meal should cost was disappointing, the service was lousy, it's not the restaurant's fault. God predetermined that. You know, if you um, are texting and you run into the back of a vehicle ahead of you that's stopped at the intersection, you can just tell the police officer, God, you know. So you see how quickly this predestination concept falls apart. Uh, Those who speak of it do so on the basis of human thought and speculation, but not on the basis of Scripture. Over the course of my ministry that has now spanned four decades and counting, I have seen how this idea of double predestination creates doubt and fear among the hearts of many believers. Listen to what Martin Luther said about this idea of double predestination so long ago. I quote, These are the delusions of the devil with which he tries to cause us to doubt and disbelieve. Although Christ came into the world to make us completely certain, for eventually either despair must follow or contempt for God, for the Holy Bible, for baptism, and for all the blessings of God through which he 
wanted us to be strengthened over against uncertainty and doubt. And if you want to dig deeper into these words of Luther, this is from his lectures on the book of Genesis. So if we speak of predestination, we should speak of, ah, single predestination, not double. For our Father in heaven has a single will. It is God's desire that all would know him and love him and serve him. Hard as it may be for us to comprehend, God loves everyone. Doesn't like what everyone does, but God has love for every human being. And God wants all people, especially those farthest from his loving heart, to experience his grace and mercy and the transformation, the conversion it brings. God tells us over and over again in his word that he wants the salvation of all people. God cannot simultaneously desire the salvation of every human being and then simultaneously desire that some will be damned. It's just contradictory and God is not contradictory. But God will not force us to love him in response to his love for us. God will not force us to follow Jesus. If we choose to turn our backs on God, then God will give us that freedom and watch us walk away. And friends, this brings no joy in heaven. And as for the speculation that always comes up, well, what about those who've never heard the good news of Jesus Christ? Is God going to send those poor people to hell because they never had a chance to hear the gospel? Well, I suggest to you that such speculation should be replaced by service and sacrifice. If you really care, if you really care about people in remote parts of the world who've never heard of Jesus Christ, then you should go there and tell them. You should do everything in your power to reach out to them with the gospel. And if you won't go there yourself, then you should support generously those who are doing this work of evangelism. But God does not call us to speculation and doubt. God calls us to faithfulness and service. So let's dig deeper into today's text. As God's chosen ones, holy, that means set apart. Beloved, that means you're loved. We're to clothe ourselves in a certain way. When you get dressed, it's an intentional, deliberate act of the will. You make a choice. Your clothes do not magically leave the closet, get out of the dresser drawer, or arise from the dirty clothes bin and put themselves on you. You made a choice about what you were going to wear today, and uh, don't blame God if it looks bad. It wasn't predestined. The battle in which we're engaged, this struggle, is a battle between Everything that's good and everything that's holy, it's waged around us and within us, and we should wear the right clothing for this spiritual struggle. There are certain things we learned that no longer fit us. They're not proper for us to put on as God's chosen ones. We examined those things in last week's sermon. Sexual impurity, greed, malice, foul language. And having heard what should be cast off, And that doesn't mean you just give it to goodwill. You crucify it. (laughs) You put it to death. Paul turns to those things that we should now put on. Those spiritual attributes that have their source in God that we should be embracing. So, grace is not 
allowing us to think that we earn this place in God's kingdom. We're, we're chosen. God chose us before we could choose to serve him in return. But the same grace that I preached on year after year, which is categorically opposed to earning our righteousness, is not opposed to a little effort on our part. God is glorified when we seek to do his will. When we let our light so shine before others that they see good works and glorify the Father in heaven. So we are to clothe ourselves with certain things. Let's look at them briefly. Compassion. That means to have passion for others, especially when they're suffering. Now when it comes to suffering, the misfortunes, the, um, the difficult situations that we witness in the lives of others. Um, I know that we often think, I don't know that we always say, but we think quietly, well, sure I'm glad that's not me. That must be really rough. But sometimes Christians will say, well, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Now think about that. When someone has suffered a tremendous loss, a disease, a death, a disappointment. And we say, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Does that mean the suffering person, the sick person, the one who is burying their son or daughter, the one that's being persecuted or abused for their strong faith in Christ around the world where Christians are despised? Does it mean all these people are without grace? That somehow God has graced us but not graced them? See, compassion is different, isn't it? And we know of this compassion in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. When one member of the body is honored, we all rejoice. We're happy for other people when good things happen. And when one member of the body suffers, we suffer together. We bear one another's burdens. We are to put on kindness. I'm a Boy Scout. I admit it. I was a Cub Scout. I was an Eagle Boy Scout. I'm glad my folks put me into the scouting program. I learned to be a kind young man in scouting. Opening doors, yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir. But kindness is much more than being polite, though our culture could certainly use more civility. I always looked for a little old lady to help cross the road as a boy scout. I knew I needed to do a good turn, a kind thing each day. But kindness is more than that. It's putting the best construction on things, not the worst. Uh, kindness is defending our neighbor, not hearing things second and third hand, and then saying to other people, well, just between the two of us, did you hear what I heard about so-and-so? Kindness is treating other people the way you want to be treated. And we could have a whole sermon series just on Christian kindness. Humility. We're to clothe ourselves with humility. And this does not mean becoming a doormat. But it does mean we shouldn't think more of ourselves than we should. Uh, at the foot of the cross, it's level ground, right? At the cross, we must all admit that we've fallen short, that we've all sinned, that we don't have all the answers, all the solutions, all the time. I shared this uh, with the people who chose to attend the annual meeting last week. One of the many, many, many questions I get Week after week here at Faith is, Pastor, why do you have communion at Faith so often? Do you think that the people in your congregation are that bad? Well, no. 
but I think you sin, and I know I do. I know I do. So we humble ourselves at the Lord's table. And we humble ourselves knowing that his love and grace are life. And without him, we would be lost. And we admit that we have sinned by what we've done and by what we've left undone. Every last one of us. Clothing, we're to put on meekness. In my experience, this is probably the most understood attribute of Christian character. The conventional meaning of this word is what makes uh, many of the men I know, ladies, I'm not trying to exclude you, this is not sexism, but among the men I know, it's this concept of meekness that makes them want to stay away from the body of Christ. Because how do most people think of meekness? Well, the way the dictionary defines it. Tame, timid, mild, bland, unambitious, weak, docile, repressed, suppressed, spiritless, broken, and wimpish. That's not what the Bible means by meekness. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. The Bible describes Moses, who was very meek, above all men which were upon the face of the earth. Biblically speaking, the meek person has ceased to think of himself or herself as the center of the universe. Pride, arrogance have been crucified. The meek person doesn't measure the importance of events by their relationship to their personal comfort or what gain uh, they will see. The meek person tries to look at things from God's perspective. So a meek person can and should be as strong as steel when it comes to loving and serving God. A meek person does not take everything lying down wimpishly. Moses was no wimp. He met Pharaoh face to face. He didn't flinch or back down because he knew God and knew that God was on his side against evil Meek people will be as tough as nails. So meekness is not weakness. It's actually a strength if it's spirit-born. Jesus was meek. Could have sent down an army of angels to destroy those who were crucifying him and mocking him, but he did not. Instead, the meek Lamb of God used his strength to bear the weight of the cross. And it wasn't just the sum total weight of those wooden beams that he carried. It was the terrible weight of your sin and mine. We're to be patient. Boy, that's a discipline these days, to be patient, especially in our culture where everything just seems to be so readily available, so quickly acquired. Be patient. And if you have any difficulty with being patient with others... You think of your own life journey and you think of all the ways in which God has had to be patient with you to come around and for you to finally get it. I thank the Lord that God has been patient with me and I thank the Lord that his servant named Kirsten Wilder has been patient with me. Put on forgiveness. You know, I know when a couple comes in for pastoral care and counseling that there's trouble if they come in with their score 
cards and say, well, tell me about what's going on. Well, you go first. And then it's the long list of all the things that spouse has done wrong, all the offenses. Well, I'll see you those and I'll raise you and trump you this list of all the wrongs with no forgiveness. You know, when we're forgiving people, we don't keep score and we don't seek to get even. And don't we pray for the spirit of forgiveness every Sunday in the Lord's Prayer? And when we pray that prayer, do we mean it? Do you mean it? Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone from whom you need to ask forgiveness? And we are to put on love. Not just, you know, sappy, romantic love. Not just, you know, the filios, the love of country, the love of our countrymen and women, but this particular kind of love that the Bible calls agape. It's the kind of love we see in Jesus. It's the kind of love that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians. Faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love, and it never ends. Other things will cease and stop and run out, but not love. Those same couples that often come in when there's trouble, they haven't spoken a kind word, a loving word to one another. And I'll just say, do you, do you, do you even like each other? Do you, do you still love each other? Well, of course I love her. I go to work, don't I? Of course I love them. I mean, I've been here all these years, haven't I? Well, that's one way to define love. But God loves us tenderly. Patiently, and he took the time to say it. And he said it in Jesus. And he spared nothing in showering us with that love. And we're called to love one another as he first loved us. And then thankfulness. We're to be a thankful people. We are to put on gratitude. Some of you know, and I'm not going into details today, that my family's going through a challenging time health-wise. And um, I know from my own personal experience that it's easier to be thankful when things are going great, isn't it? Hard to be thankful when you get bad news, when there's um, some difficulty. We're called to be thankful in all things, in all seasons. Jesus was thankful even when everything got difficult and dangerous. Jesus gave thanks even when he knew he was about to be betrayed and die a most miserable, horrible death. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples. So we put on thankfulness. Not that we're thankful that we just found out we've got cancer or that a loved one is dying. But we're thankful that even in the midst of such difficulties and disease, God has promised that nothing in all creation can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that he will never, ever abandon us or stop loving us, no matter how far we may have wandered away from him. He always rejoices when we come home. So once again today, we will share Holy Communion the Lord's Supper. Jesus is the host and you are his chosen guest.
You're chosen. And in so choosing you and inviting you to receive his body and his blood, it doesn't mean that he simultaneously rejoices that others are not at this table or would not want them to come to eat and drink. You see, that's double predestination. Christ would have many more at his table of love. But you are here, chosen by God, not because of your good deeds. You can't draw near to Christ based on your goodness, and neither can I. But we come confessing our sins, thanking God for his grace, and remembering Jesus, who chose to die for sinners like you and a sinner like me, that we might live with him forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.